Amen. If you have elementary age kids, we'd love to be a part of what we have going on with our Vine Kids Time. Or if you have 5th, 6th, and 7th graders, they're out the back door over here. Miss Katie and Miss Eloise are going to open that door and our kiddos can go out that direction. Again, if you are here for the first time, let me be the hopefully the second or third or fifth to welcome you here. Uh, hopefully that you are have met some folks and they have made you feel welcome uh, but we are honored that you would be here, that you would spend your Sunday morning with us. Uh, my name is Treb Prater, and I'm lead pastor here, and we are honored that you would give us your Sunday morning. Uh, you've kind of come at a, at a really great time. We are about half a year into a journey through the Gospel of John. Week 27, we're actually beginning, and, and we've kind of been working through every single verse and every single word of this Gospel. And I say this each week, John's Gospel, this journey that we're on, is unlike most journeys that we've gone through because... John's gospel is really concerned with one principal thing. He's not hung up on stories or geography or narratives. He's hung up on the person of Jesus. John wants us to see that Jesus is in fact God. His entire gospel is pointing to that picture. Unlike the other gospels that tell a, a history story or the life of Christ, which is fantastic, John is focused singularly on the deity of Christ, and he wants us to know that Jesus is in fact God, which makes my job incredibly important. Simple. I just want you to see Jesus, right? That's all I want anyway, but that makes preaching John easy because we're just going to find Jesus in and amongst every word. Brandon sent me a message on Friday as I was kind of preparing this, and he was like, I'm praying for you. How's it going? I said, I think I'm just going to talk about Jesus. And he was like, what else is there? I'm like, I don't know. That's about it, though. It's what we've got. So this morning, we're going to come face to face with a really, I think, significant question um, that is going to be plaguing not only the people that are in uh, Israel, but plaguing the Jewish leaders as well. And that's, what do we really believe about Jesus? Or as I frame it, which Jesus do I believe in? Um, so chapter 6, where we spent the past six weeks, right, minus a few, uh, like last week at Teen Challenge here, but really the past six weeks that we've studied, we've looked at chapter 6. It took us forever to get through because it is so theologically deep and rich that we spent a bunch of time there because the entire chapter is connecting the deity of Christ to the Father. He is making claims and supporting that he is testifying that Jesus himself, in Jesus' own words, I and the Father are essentially one. And so the entire chapter is devoted to the idea that Jesus is not just some traveling rabbi, not just some moral teacher, but that he is in fact God, and that he is in essence God, and that he is the bread of heaven sent by the Father to provide for people as the only way to eternal life. And there were a couple of really important miracles that kind of formulated in and among there. And so all of that, we spent all that time in chapter 6. At the end of chapter 6, things got really complicated, though, because Jesus' teaching was so strong that many of his disciples said, we, we can't accept this, and they left him. And so we see a, sort of a, a large mass exodus, if you will, at the end of chapter 6, of people that were following Jesus that basically said, we can't do this anymore. This teaching is too hard. And it wasn't that they didn't understand it. It was that they couldn't accept it. And so Jesus, two weeks ago, we looked at this, turns to his 12 disciples and he says, aren't you two going, aren't y'all also, are you guys also going to leave? And Peter kind of speaks up as a spokesman for those guys, as he usually was. And he says, where else would we go? To whom else we would go? He actually says, you alone have the words of eternal life. And we, we were able to anchor ourselves that even though Jesus' words were so complicated and so hard to hear for the disciples, the truth was is that Jesus was still and always will be the answer. 
Well, the tide is going to turn from this point on in John's gospel. Everything was sort of in favor of Jesus up until this point, but now we're going to be seeing this groundswell of movement that's going to ultimately lead Jesus to the cross. It's going to begin here, and it's going to lead him to Calvary, ultimately to his death. The swell of affection is going to turn to the anger of people, led by the Jewish leaders and the influencers, kind of pushing this crowd to question who Jesus is really is. And we're going to see that in John chapter 7. And this is going to lead us all the way into the last week of Christ and ultimately to the cross. And so this morning, the question on our plate is, which Jesus do I truly believe in? So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 7. We're going to be in the first 13 or so verses this morning as we ask ourselves that question. But before we do that, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to teach our hearts this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word, that it is living and active. You actually tell us, God, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates the dividing even soul and spirit, joint and marrow, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. That's what you call your word. Lord, you also tell us that your word is God-breathed. It is the theopunestos. It is the very breath of God. And so, Lord, we don't take this lightly. We believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, God, we ask that you would teach and reveal our hearts. We can discover nothing on our own about you. You are the revealer of all truth. You are the initiator with humanity. And so, Lord, this morning, before we open your word, we ask your, your Holy Spirit to teach our hearts. We ask you to instruct us, to lift things out of this text that you may want to be showing our hearts. Take a moment in your own life, right where you sit, and just ask the Lord to show you something this morning, to teach you. Uh, maybe that's a little bit different, but we do this each week. We, we want to be proactive in asking God just to teach our hearts. And not waiting for ourselves. We just want God to be the instructor of our soul. So just ask the Lord to teach you something this morning. And pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. Even if you don't know their name or know who they are, just ask the Lord to move in them. We want to be a community that's praying for other people. This whole thing is not about you. It's not about me. It's about people meeting Jesus. And so just pray for somebody else this morning. Pray that God would move in their heart. Lord, you alone are King Eternal. God, you alone hold the stars and the moon. You breathe life into our lungs, Lord. And so you are the revealer of truth. God, teach us about yourself and about your character and about your nature. Encourage, convict, We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're going to be in chapter 7. We've made it through chapter 6. Many of the disciples, and not the the 12, but remember there are a lot of people that followed Jesus that weren't in the 12. Well, many of those have turned and they've left. Um, Jesus' teaching was hard. It was challenging. It was offensive uh, because it was not about me or about you. And so people had a hard time buying into and accepting that this could be true. And so they left. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 7, verse 1, and go down through 13. And this is what our text says. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. 
Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to the feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. So if you remember from chapter 6, Jesus had moved from teaching on the side of the lake where he fed 5,000. He'd got in a boat and crossed over and encountered a crowd again and got into a debate and argument about their intentions with them. They had moved from there to the temple in Capernaum where Jesus had engaged them in this dialogue about the bread of life. And we talked about communion and we talked about how Jesus was the provision from God and that he was the only way to eternal life. And after that, when those disciples heard all that difficult teaching and they left, when Jesus was talking about his flesh and his blood and they left, Jesus leaves Capernaum and he begins to wander around Galilee. Now, as a quick reminder, as a New Testament geography lesson, Israel, for all practical purposes, is long and skinny and it's divided into three main regions. You had Judea to the south, which was where Jerusalem was. You had Samaria in the middle, which no Jew would go through or walk through, right, except Jesus. And then you had Galilee to the north, right, where Jesus was from, where the Sea of Galilee was, and where a lot of Jesus' earthly ministry took place. Well, Capernaum is up here, and it's in Galilee, and Jesus is there, and he leaves that temple, and he begins wandering around the kind of Galilean countryside, doing essentially what Jesus does, which is healing and proclaiming and teaching, doing the things that he does up there in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. So Jesus knew, and people knew, because of the encounters that he had had, that waiting for him in Judea, or really in Jerusalem, where all the Jewish leaders and influencers were, they were growing increasingly tired of Jesus, right? The same way they had grown increasingly tired of John the Baptist, ultimately had had him arrested, and then Herod had him beheaded, if you remember, okay? Well, Jesus knows this, and he's staying away from Jerusalem because, as we're going to learn, the time for Jesus is not, it's not right. It's not perfect. The time of his sacrifice of his life and all that is not perfect. And so he's intentionally staying away, doing what he does in Galilee when his brothers, right, when his brothers approached him about the Feast of Tabernacles, now, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, we said, talked about this before a little bit, but there's three main pilgrimage feasts in the life of a Jewish person, in the life of Israel. Passover, Pentecost uh, were the first two. And then the Feast of Tabernacles are also called the Festival of Booths, depending on how you want to uh, read it or translate it. But really, it was, the, it was the festival of celebrating God's provision during Israel's wandering in the wilderness. It also commemorated the kind of completion of an agricultural harvest. All those things kind of rolled into one. And it was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths because for a week, everybody would migrate all the way down to Jerusalem and they would put up makeshift tents or booths or tabernacles, right? Which is sort of meaning the same thing. And they would live in there for a week as a way of reminding themselves to get out of their daily comfort and to live in the provision and protection of God the same way their forefathers had done as as they wandered the wilderness. And it was a really a joyful celebration because it was a celebration of God's provision. And they also celebrated the hauling in or the bringing in or the completion of the harvest, right? 
And so that time was drawing near. And as it was drawing near, people had to make their way miles and miles and miles. They had a pilgrimage to the actual temple in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. So Jesus has got some brothers and they come to him and they basically say to him, look, it's the time for the festival of tabernacles or the feast of booths, right? They said, look, you should do something. We've got an idea for you because somehow they've sort of appointed themselves as his campaign managers. And they say, look, you got to go down to Judea, right? You have to do that so your disciples down there may see the miracles that you do. No one wants to become a public figure. They don't, if they want to become a public figure, they don't act in secret. You're doing all these things. Show yourself to the world. And then John adds this little line for even his own brothers didn't believe in him, which is a really interesting line, which we'll get to in a minute. But Jesus' brothers say, listen, why are you wandering around here in Galilee, right? Where nobody really is. There's not a lot of influencers, a bunch of fishermen and rural people. <clears throat> you need to take yourself and your ministry and your life and all the miracles that you do. And you need to travel down to Jerusalem, to Judea, where people are, where all the crowds are. And think about this. The town is going to be so full of people that when you do your thing, your miracles, your magic, when you do all that, they're going to see you. If you want to gain a real following and be a real public figure, then you've got to get a bigger stage. It's essentially what they're saying to Jesus, right? Um, not denying that Jesus was doing any incredible things. They're actually saying that because you're doing such great things, we want more people to maybe know about you, so go down there. And Jesus says to them, listen, it's not my time yet, right? My time has not yet come. He said, look, the world won't hate you, but the world hates me has a really similar ring to it. If you remember back to John 2, uh, the very first miracle that Jesus performs, remember turning water to wine in Cana was at the wedding. And the feast and the, uh, the festival in the sort of middle of feast, there was an embarrassment because the, the, the guy that was running the party, right, uh, ran out of wine. And so Jesus' mother comes to him and he says, she says, you've got to do something because the host has run out of wine. And Jesus looks at her and he says, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come, right? Very similar conversation he has with his brothers. They say, look, you got to get down there. You got to go do your magic show and all your miracles down in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, my time has not yet come. But like the miracle in Cana, Jesus actually still performs it, right? Even though he says that to his mom, kind of rebukes her, he still changes the water into wine. Well, like that, he looks at his brothers and he says, you guys go. I'm not, I'm not going right now. And sure enough, that was true. He didn't go right now. He waited and he went behind them. But he didn't go publicly. He went in secret. So Jesus sort of tracks behind the pilgrimage crowd. They're probably from the city there. They all went together. They caravaned down together. And Jesus goes behind them, right? And when he gets there to the city, he sees that the Jews and the Jewish leaders and the influencers are asking, where is that man, right? That one that everyone's talking about, where is he? And the crowds, they had widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Some say, no, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him because they feared the Jews. You know, it's a, it's a fascinating text for lots and lots of reasons. Um, but the, the reasons I want to get into today are a little bit kind of under the surface. Because I think that question, the one that I asked originally, is really staring us in the face, which is, what Jesus do you believe in, right? Because in this little text, there's really three, maybe four, but really three complete different pictures of the person of Jesus Christ. 
And the question on the table is, which one of those do you truly believe in? There's a story, or it's not really a story, it was was written. R.C. Sproul, who's a sort of renowned theologian, pastor, author, kind of wrote this in a book that he was writing about when people would come to him and they would say, R.C., how do I know that I'm truly saved? Right? They would come to him as, a, as their pastor or as, just as a, as a theologian. And they would say, I'm wrestling with whether or not I'm truly saved. Like, how do I know? And he said that I would ask them three simple questions. He said, I would look at them first and I would say, do you love Jesus perfectly? And the person would always say, well, no, that's why I'm asking you this question. He says, okay, well, then do you love Jesus as much as you ought to? And they would say, well, no. Definitely not as much as I should. And then he said, I would ask him a third question and say, do you love Jesus at all? And to the person would always say, well, well, absolutely, I love Jesus. And then R.C. said that he would look at him, he would say, well, then rest assured in this. In your natural sinful state, you have no capacity to love Jesus at all. You are a natural enemy to him. So the fact that you have any love in your heart at all, you can rest assured in the fact that you have a saving relationship with the Lord and Savior. But then he said, over the years, I learned that I had to add a qualifier to that last question. That last question of, do you love Jesus at all? The qualifier I had to ask was, do you love the true biblical Jesus at all? Because he said, what I found was that people were falling in love with their own definitions of who Jesus was, which really fits powerfully into what we're looking at today which is, what Jesus do you believe in? And there's three that we see. And if we start with the crowd, right, that's asking questions or that's got comments and the leaders are going, Who, where is that man? And the crowd has got whispers going around them. And I guess Jesus in his hoodie is walking around. No one can kind of tell. I, I kind of can't get the image of like Obi-Wan Kenobi in that city of Star Wars. No one knows who, but I mean, it's also Jesus. He's probably just like, you can't see me. And so he's walking around and people are talking about him, right? And some are saying, he's a good man. And then others on the opposite end of that spectrum are saying, no, he is a deceiver of people. So the first two comments about the person of Christ, we see coming right from the middle of that crowd, right? He's a good man, or no, he's a deceiver. This third one, which we'll talk about, actually comes from his brothers. And it's kind of the question of, do you believe in Jesus, the Jesus of your expectations? And we'll get to that in a minute, but let's deal with the first two first. Some said that he is a good man, which is really fascinating to me, right? Because what they're really saying is that Jesus, in spite of what he says, the things that he do, he's doing are essentially really good, right? He goes around and he, he hugs children, And he lays his hands on people that are are marginalized or on the fringes of society that is heart. And that what he is essentially doing with his actions is good. When you say that someone's good, when you say, look, you are a good man or you are a good woman, what you are saying is that morally and ethically, you do things that are good for people. And that's what part of this crowd was saying. Because the Jewish leaders wanted everyone riled up, but some of the crowd was saying, no, he's He's not bad. He's a good man, which is actually really true. Of course, Jesus was good. But what that crowd failed to recognize was that Jesus' goodness was intrinsically tied to his deity. Jesus was good because Jesus was God. Because here's the truth. Jesus could not be good 
if he wasn't God because almost all of what Jesus was saying would be a lie. In chapter 6 alone, we looked at the past six weeks, Jesus claims to be equal with the creator of the universe. He claims to be one with God himself. So this good, moral, traveling, wandering rabbi that loves children and puts his hands on sick people, right? That good man, his entire life, and the words that he speaks, is a lie if he's not God. So when we think about that scenario that that we all want to believe, and right, a lot of our culture believes that Jesus is a good man. Like, I can get behind that moral teaching of the first become last and turn your other cheek and all those things. But in order to do that, we have to ignore the deity of Christ. Or we have to acknowledge that the deity is what makes Jesus good. And that crowd, they wanted to be tied to the goodness of Jesus' morals without having to deal with his claims of deity, which is exactly where our culture wants to live. We want to live in a place where we can deal with the goodness of Jesus' moral character and teaching, but not have to deal with his claims of deity. Because my belief is that you can't truly think that Jesus is a good man if you listen to the things that come out of his mouth and don't believe that he's God. Because he's an absolute lunatic at that point in time. Right? So the crowd believed that this Jesus was not really bad. He was doing too many good things to be bad. So we can just sort of side with his good actions, but ignore, ignore his claims to deity. And I think a lot of us live there. A lot of us want to believe in that Jesus, right? We want to believe in the Jesus that doesn't ever convict or challenge or direct me to some place I don't want to go. We want to believe in a Jesus that has us holding hands in a giant circle around the earth, singing songs so that we can all get along because he loved kids and he loved poor people. That's the Jesus I can get behind because I don't want to deal with the fact that Jesus' deity is tied to his goodness, right? So we've got that part of the crowd. Then we have the second claim that comes out of there, which could not be farther down the spectrum, right? Jesus is a good man. He's a good moral teacher. The other end of the spectrum is Jesus is a deceiver. Now, this was actually a very widespread opinion by the Jewish leaders and influencers. They believed that Jesus was intentionally trying to deceive the people to create a groundswell of power for himself to take from them. That's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the rulers and influence were threatened. They were threatened because they believed Jesus was going to take a groundswell of political power away from them and establish himself as political king, which they all believed the Messiah would do, by the way. They just didn't want that to really happen without them. And so they believed that Jesus was the great deceiver of people. In fact, if you remember back to the end of Matthew, Jesus has been, he's been handed over, he's been crucified, right? And his body has been taken down from the cross, And it's been given to the disciples, and they are taking it to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, right? And they're making the body ready. And the the Jewish leaders, they went to Pontius Pilate, and they said this. They said, you need to go and secure the tomb. Because if you remember, that deceiver, they actually call him that, that deceiver said that he would rise in three days. And this deception, if that happens, would be worse than the first, because we think it's disciples are going to come and take his body. 
And so Pontius Pilate does what they say. He makes the tomb secure with a Roman guard and a seal and the whole bit. You remember that part of the story. But the Jewish leaders believed that Jesus was the great deceiver of people because he was out for a power, a political power grab, and he threatened their way of life, right? Now, I venture to say that the majority of us that are gathered here this morning probably don't fall into the camp that I believe that Jesus is the great deceiver, right? But we know people that believe that, that religion on any level or even in Christianity is the great deceptive tool, right? That it's a hoax, that it's not anything worth believing in, that it is an attempt for people to grab power or to lean on power, right? Because they've seen things throughout history done in the name of religion that are horrific. And they watch people that have taken religion or God and used it for their power and their glory. We've all seen it, right? That's why most of us have huge issues with the church in the first place, because we've watched people take power and abuse other people with it in the name of Jesus. I mean, most of us are gathered here because we had some kind of problem with church. It's just the truth. Everybody brings their baggage here, right? Because we watched something unfold that we didn't like. And it's not that we believe Jesus is the deceiver, right? But we believe there are people that believe that. So there are these, these camps, right? That Jesus is a good man, but it's not tied to his deity. And then there's Jesus that's the deceiver, right? Which most of us in here wouldn't say we necessarily believe. But then you've got the brothers, which this whole thing is fascinating to me. Because here are the brothers, right? Jesus is going around Galilee doing what Jesus does. He's healing, and he's, he's preaching, and he's proclaiming. And his brothers, who you don't hear a whole lot about him, mean, you hear a lot about James as he goes on to be sort of the, the leader of the church, and, and, and he does some, some pretty cool things in Jerusalem after Jesus dies. But you don't really hear much about them before that. And they come to him, and they essentially say, hey, look, you need to take this show on the road, man. you got to get down to Judea where the people are. They don't deny that he's doing miraculous things. They actually say, you need to go down to your disciples in Judea so that they may see the miracles that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, anyway, go show yourself to the world. That's their comment, right? Like, <clears throat> they believe that Jesus is doing these things. But then John makes this incredible statement in verse 5 where he says, even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. Now, I believe, just from reading that text, that if you were to ask each of Jesus' brothers, do you believe in your brother Jesus? Every single one of them, without hesitation, would say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he's doing the things. We were at the wedding when he turned the water into wine. We have seen these things. But the brothers didn't believe in the true biblical picture of Jesus. They believed in the Jesus of their expectations. And a lot of people, like you and I, we fall into that category. See, they still wanted Jesus to be the conquering hero. They wanted the Messiah that was going to come riding into town on the back of a, of a stallion and overthrow the Romans and push him out and reestablish Israel as the great nation. That's the brother they could get behind. So you're not going to do that in Galilee riding around up here, right, with all the agricultural farmers and fishermen. You have got to go to the capital city. You have got to get to Jerusalem where the people are. Get off this small stage and do something grand. 
so that we can have that. That's the Jesus of their expectations. And that's the Jesus they believed in. But John knew that even though his brothers believed that he did all those miracles and believed that his stage was too small, they did not understand or believe in the Jesus of Scripture, the one that we're looking at. And I think the majority of us fall into this category. We believe in the Jesus of our expectations. It's why the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it, is so attractive. Because if I just love Jesus enough and have enough faith, he will give me whatever I want and whatever I ask for. My faith has just got to be enough, and I just have to proclaim it loud enough, and Jesus will give me what I expect. Because Jesus wants for me what I want for myself. And it is a garbage lie. But it's why it's attractive, right? Because that's the Jesus we want to follow. We want the Jesus that we come to and we cry out to and he gives us all that we long for and want. God, I need you to fix this, do this, give me, give me, give me. And Jesus says, just have faith and it can all be yours. That's what the brothers wanted. It's why R.C. had to ask that qualifying question because everybody would answer, do you love Jesus at all? The answer is yes, of course I love Jesus at all. And he says, which Jesus? Do you love the one that gives you things that you can ask for and that meets all your expectations? Or do you love Jesus of Scripture? The true, real, biblical picture of Jesus that came to take all of your garbage, your lies, your sin, your deceit, and exchange them for his glory and whom I could never imagine asking anything else. The Jesus of Scripture that says, it's not what I will give you, right? But what I've given you. The fact that we have the audacity to ask the God of the universe for anything other than the beautiful picture of redemptive salvation is amazing. The God of Scripture, right? The Jesus we see in the pages of the Bible is a God who takes on the weight of the sin of humanity. All your lies, all of my garbage, all of our sinful pride, every single thing that we've ever done. And he takes it on his back and he bears the weight of the world and he dies for it. Not so that you can live comfortably, not so that you can have the life of your wildest dreams, but so you can be saved from death and have abundant, true, peace-filled life here that glorifies not you, but him. That's the God of Scripture. It's the Jesus of the Bible. Do you love that Jesus at all? Or do you have a fabrication of the Jesus that you've made that wants to give you the American dream, the picture, the pieces, that as long as it fits within my understanding and category, I'm head over heels in love with that Jesus. But the moment he calls me to surrender myself or to die to myself, well, that's a Jesus I can't get behind. And that's why John, in verse 5, says even his brothers didn't believe in him because his brothers didn't get it. They saw the miracles. They believed that he was an incredibly good man. In fact, they wanted him to go to Jerusalem and get a bigger stage. But they didn't believe in the true Jesus. To me, this is that's frightening. It really is frightening if you think about it. Because they 
knew him intimately. If anybody knew Jesus intimately, it's got to be his brothers, right? Maybe even more so than the disciples. They saw his miracles. They believed the miracles were true. They believed that he was probably the Messiah and headed for something incredible. And even in the middle of all that, they didn't know Jesus. It means you can show up here every day of your life. Well, we're only here once a week. But if you show up here once a week, right? Maybe Mondays. And you can believe in the Jesus that you want to create in your mind. You can believe in a Jesus that gives you what you need, that comforts and heals and rescues, but never convicts or challenges or calls for brokenness. You can show up here and you can read all the stories and never really know him. Most frightening picture in all of Scripture actually comes in Matthew 7. When Jesus is having this end of this conversation with the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking, and he basically looks at a bunch of people, and he says, listen, there's going to be a time where you stand in judgment, essentially. And you're going to say to me, didn't we cast out demons and prophecy in your name? Didn't we do all these incredible things for you? And he says, I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to say, away from me, you evildoers, because I did not know you. The reason that's frightening is because all those things those guys were doing were right. They were spiritual. They were engaged in the things of God. They prophesied. They cast out demons. They did great things, but they never knew the real Jesus. The question on the table for, for us, for, for you, for me this morning, is what Jesus do you believe in? Do we believe that Jesus is just some good man, some moral teacher who's Goodness is not intrinsically tied to his deity. Maybe we believe that Jesus is a swindler, right? This whole idea of religion is a joke. Could definitely fall into that category. Maybe we believe in the Jesus of our expectations, the Jesus that gives me everything and costs me nothing, the Jesus that supplies my needs financially and the life that I want but never calls me to surrender my heart or my wants or my desires to him. The Jesus of my expectations. Or the picture of this true biblical Jesus that calls me to a life that lays everything down for his glory, who exchanged my sinful brokenness for his incredible beauty, that saved me while I was drowning, that rescued me, to whom I can't imagine asking for anything else than Jesus save me. That's the true biblical picture of Christ, the one that calls me not to elevate me, but calls me to die so that I might know him and be saved. If we love that Jesus at all, as R.C. would say, if we love that Jesus at all, then we can rest assured in our hearts that we are saved because we have no capacity in our hearts to love that Jesus, a part of what he does in us. So let your guard down and let your soul rest and fall in love with the true biblical Jesus. Let's pray together. God, you are infinitely great. And Lord, I confess that I, over time, have created a great picture of the Jesus I want to believe in. As I say all the time, the Jesus that gives me everything and costs me nothing. It's just a lie. Lord, the truth is, is that you rescued us while we were dying. That through Jesus, while in the middle of our sin, you did for us that we could not do for ourselves. 
that you call us just to surrender our lives and have abundant life here on earth, peace-filled, abundant life here on earth, and the promise of eternal life in heaven. And yet, God, I confess that we are not content. We want more and more and more, and not just materially, but just for our own self. And the truth is, if you've done all this for us, how could we ever fathom asking you for anything else? Like the fact that you pulled me out of a ditch, out of death and decay, and rescued me and exchanged my sin for your glory, how is that not enough for me? Lord, I pray that my life and that the life of those of us gathered here today would be anchored in this truth that you are the true Jesus. And that, God, you saved us when we are dying, and that is enough for me. That I will spend the rest of my life, or I want to spend the rest of my life, surrendering to your will because of what you've done. God, I want my soul to rest in you. I want to find joy in you, and I want you to be enough for me. So, Lord, as we close our time in worship, may those things be true that we would find our joy in you, that we would find our rest in you, and that you would be enough. And we ask this in your son's perfect and holy, and in the name of all that we will ever need, Jesus of Nazareth, amen. Let's stand together and close our time in worship.